Hello, pod people. I am DA, and welcome to Millennial Edition. Thanks for joining us. In this episode, we have the privilege of speaking with millennial activist and educator Gabriel Tenglau, and we will be discussing the current state of education in America. As always, remember to subscribe to our podcast, tell a friend, and follow us on Twitter to be a part of the discussion. You can also email us your comments and questions at millennialedition1 at gmail.com. Okay, so let's dive right in. Gabriel, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm excited. As you know, this is a millennial-centered podcast, so I wanted to start off by asking you, what words come to mind if you were to describe our millennial generation? If I had to choose three words to describe our generation, I'd say the first one is misunderstood. The second is game-changing. I feel like we have the opportunity to be a game-changing generation for this critical moment in history. And I'd also say dope. I feel like we have a style and a generational character that differs from other generations that I embrace fully. So uh, misunderstood, game-changing, and dope. I think those are really good. I would agree. And you have had a long and impressive 20-year career in the educational system and as an activist in civil and human rights. You got your start in 2010 working in the Bergen County School System, which you did for almost a decade, and then you completed a global learning fellowship in South Africa. You are currently the Associate Director of Human and Civil Rights, Equity and Governance at the New Jersey Education Association in Trenton, New Jersey. You are also a member of the National Board of Directors and a chairperson on the National Diversity Committee, which is an organization that trains progressive millennials in leadership. So what drew you towards the field of education, especially in New Jersey? Yeah, so just to give a little context about my own background and own ancestry and lineage, my parents migrated here from the Philippines and ended up living in New Jersey. And I was born in Teaneck, New Jersey, so uh, homegrown in Jersey. So it was actually a really beautiful opportunity after I had completed my undergrad in political science at Pace University and my master's in teaching. And I ended up teaching social studies at Bergenfield High School, which is in the town right next to where I grew up. And um, what's really beautiful about that is it's one of the largest Filipino populations in the state of New Jersey, next to Jersey City, of course. And being a person of Filipino ancestry, it was just almost the universe and the creator and the ancestors put me in place to be connected to my community. So part of what drew me there, though, is I didn't intend to be an educator when I entered my undergrad. I ended up starting my journey as a business major, and it was actually through a few classes and inspirational professors that helped me grow into my own political consciousness, that became the driving force, which was to try to change the world for the better. 
it was at a time where, you know, so much was going on. I'll even contextualize it in the moment following 9-11, preparing for war in Iraq and Afghanistan under the second Bush administration. So there was a lot going on that was part of the catalyst for my own political consciousness. And in driving towards trying to change the world, I recognized that so many of my professors that had inspired me to grow in my consciousness, I aspired to be like those educators and serve my own communities and my own people and the youth in particular and plant seeds along the way for the next generations to change the world. So that's what drew me to education and uh, landed me in Bergenfield High School in 2010 is when I started my career. And full disclosure to our listeners, Gabriel and I met 20 years ago at Pace University in the political science field. So it's really, really excited to speak with you again. So talk a little bit about your Global Learning Fellowship in South Africa and what training and experiences you gained and brought to your teaching. Yeah, so I'm so glad that you brought that up. I, I just have to say to all of your listeners that I am just so grateful to reconnect with you on a platform that you've established and just really part of our journey, even dating back to Pace University and thinking about the Global Fellowship by the NEA Foundation that helped enable me to have an immersive learning experience in South Africa. Part of that seed of global consciousness was actually planted during my experiences as an undergrad in the Model United Nations program which I know we were both a part of. And, I remember. Um, leaders in. <laughs> and that's part of our connection. And I, I again, it's just a, a beautiful way of coming full circle where I then humbly had the opportunity to join a, a cohort of brilliant educators from across the country. And we went through a learning journey, mostly online in 2019, that culminated in an immersive learning experience in South Africa. What was most resonant from that experience, though, is being a person that is steeped in racial, social, and economic justice movements here in the United States context. It was fascinating to learn about post-apartheid South Africa, connect with the people, learn the history from a different angle, and really think about the ways that our struggles parallel. From, you know, colonization of Africa to the Americas and across the globe, as I mentioned, as being a person of the Filipino diaspora, imperialism in Southeast Asia has a major impact and connected to colonialism. So all of that global consciousness that drove my curiosity to be immersed in a fellowship program that enabled me to connect and learn with other educators across the country and across the globe was just an incredible experience. And, and there's so much more to unpack. But the, the piece that I think I'm left with is after completing a fellowship program like that, that's so deep and transformative, that it ends up leaving a hunger to serve more because I, I felt like the time there was not long enough. So from that fellowship point, I stayed in contact and in relationship with many of the educators and many of the contacts who I want to continue to build relationship with and build global community with so that we can try to share resources and find ways to navigate and disrupt the inequity and colonization that's still impacting our world today. That is so fascinating because also I did an interim thesis in South Africa as well. And I definitely worked a lot in the school systems and in youth empowerment. So we share that. And I totally get this idea of, especially in South Africa, how it kind of spurred your need furthering service. And so that kind of just resonated with me. 
So now let's talk about your role as a chairperson on the National Diversity Committee and what this organization aims to create for millennials. Yeah, so just to offer some context, I was fortunate to be part of another fellowship in 2017 with the New Leaders Council in the New Jersey chapter. The New Leaders Council is an organization that guides a group of fellows each year in each of the respective chapters across the country through a learning journey that helps develop their skills in organizing and communications and and much, much more. But the beautiful part of this fellowship, similar to the Global Learning Fellowship, is that the camaraderie and the ability to connect with folks, and for me, connect with folks across industry, other progressive millennials and other spaces from the private sector to government government to nonprofit helped me learn even more about how our movement is connected in different spaces. But the New Leaders Council was actually born out of a moment where the right wing was investing vast amounts of money in leadership for the next generation of conservative thought leaders. And as a response to that, the, the progressive side of our movement had a similar thought to invest in our own leadership so that we can continue to organize around our progressive values. This is specifically focused on a generation of millennials at the time. And through that fellowship, I ended up staying connected again by serving as an alumni, but also stepping into roles in the leadership of the state chapter. And then ultimately led me to serve on the National Diversity Committee for the New Leaders Council. And I ended up serving as chair before the end of my term. And I just have an incredible group of folks that I've learned so much from. And I, again, am still in community with and still in camaraderie with. And it was through these networks that really helped me to grow, but also find ways to support others in our collective movement for the advancement of progressive values. So ironically, we we are still in a moment where the political forces that be are taking us backwards as we try to advance forward. But in that time, again, I actually am left with seeds of hope that we can push ahead. But again, we're, we're the underdogs in the story. We're the underdogs in this moment. And there's a lot of work to do. Why do you believe that we are the underdogs in this moment? Yeah, so, you know, if you take even the most basic analysis of American history, white settler colonialism, and the ways that the systems have created wealth in this race-based economy through exploitation of labor, the the structure of our entire country is designed to support the ultra-wealthy. I mean, even the trends that we're seeing now of wealth inequity just rapidly increasing through our lifetime in particular, all of the policies, all of the systems are designed for that capitalism, right? It's hyper-capitalism and all of that concentration of wealth, those who are in power, they want to maintain that power. So ultimately, they're able to pour in those vast resources to support folks yeah, to absolutely. get elected in office policies to get moved that are are regressive. And we're seeing the, the manifestation of that as we speak. So that's why I say we're underdogs in the battle. We always have been, right? Those fighting yeah. for justice. Yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads into our next question, because as I had mentioned before, you are currently the Associate Director of Human and Civil Rights, Equity and Governance at the New Jersey Education Association in Trenton, New Jersey. Can you talk a little bit about the mission of the agency and what you hope to achieve in this role? 
Yeah, so serving as the Associate Director of Human and Civil Rights, Equity and Governance, I am serving in this role at the New Jersey Education Association. And for those who are not familiar with educator unions, this is our state affiliate that serves approximately 180,000 educators across the state of New Jersey. And our structure, without getting too deep into the weeds of it, have a more grassroots model. So we have local affiliates, county affiliates, state affiliates, and we're also nationally affiliated. But serving the state affiliate of New Jersey, there's so much complexity around our equity issues within educational justice from segregated communities, not historical segregation as we know it, but economic segregation and distribution of wealth within New Jersey. There's Eurocentric curriculum that dominates the spaces. And even in this moment, you know, although nationally we're seeing many more advancements of regressive values, right, attacks on CRT or critical race theory, which is we can go down that rabbit hole later, but attacks on LGBTQ rights and trans students and so many ways that the censorship, the limitations of academic freedom, the weaponizing of race and gender identity and expression, sexual orientation against young people, against vulnerable people, marginalized communities this is manifesting in a variety of different ways on the ground. Fortunately, in New Jersey, we have curriculum mandates from the Amistad curriculum to LGBTQ plus inclusion, Holocaust inclusion curriculum, and more. Recently, we have the AAPI curriculum inclusion mandate. But ultimately, from curriculum to resource allocation to simply defending and protecting the students and families that are from historically marginalized communities, there's just so much more, so much work to do. And in my role, it's it's about a year and a half in and we're at our inception. That's not to say that we haven't had different formations and structures, committees, and other ways that we've been addressing these issues, but this is the first time in the New Jersey Education Association history where we have dedicated staff person. Now, I'll just say one other thing because this is a trend that I know is happening across industries, across corporations, is that the term, the glass ceiling, has been something that's typically used, but the glass cliff, right? This idea that we'll, in this moment of elevated consciousness around race issues and equity issues, that they'll create new offices, but then under-resource them and ultimately set them up for failure without having the systemic and structural pieces in place to enable the work to be done on a scale. I say that with hope that, you know, within our organization, in our institution, that this is the beginning point where we'll have a greater, more impactful and more well-resourced division. But right now we're, we're at our inception. We're going through a lot of growing pains, but I'm glad to be doing the work at this time because it's such a critical moment. pleasure of listening to your spark talk for the new leaders council and it was a beautiful love letter to your daughter who at that time was not yet born welcome to my spark talk um i wrote this as a love letter to my unborn baby on the way so repeat after me we love you baby we love you baby we love you baby 
I am my ancestors' wildest dreams, and you are mine. And you start by saying that you were your ancestors' wildest dreams, and that your daughter was yours. Can you tell us how you fulfilled your ancestors' dreams, and how you hope your daughter will fulfill hers? I love that question. My goodness. Thank you for lifting up that spark talk. I, I poured a lot of heart and soul into that. And it was it was at a really interesting time where I was preparing for my beautiful daughter, Adriana Grace, to come into the world. And she is now six and a half months. Time is flying by. I'm enjoying fatherhood and parenthood. So when I wrote that line and that ancestor's wildest dreams was actually gifted to me during a visit at New Orleans for one of our conferences, but there's this beautiful art studio called Studio B. So it's Studio B-E. And Mike B, the artist there, has just an incredible, incredible experiential layout of his artwork. And I Am My Ancestors' Wildest Dreams was on a t-shirt. It's my favorite t-shirt that I rock at nearly all the conferences I can. But when I think about my ancestors, and even in adulthood, as I've dug deeper on my own revolutionary Filipino history from Lapu Lapu, who is a folk hero of one of the first chieftains to resist the first wave of colonization. Actually, allow me to just briefly share a, a quick story about that. Is I, I remember yes, in fourth, please, please share. <laughs> in my fifth grade class, and, and since we're talking about being millennials, I remember we had our first computer lab, right? And we were invited to, you know, learn typing skills and research skills on, on this new technology that our school librarian, who was incredible at the time, she invited us to do. And my teacher actually encouraged me in her most well-meaning ways to consider researching some of my own history as a Filipino person. So in fifth grade, I remember looking up through like the database encyclopedia on the computer at the time. And I remember reading about Ferdinand Magellan, who was the Portuguese explorer who discovered the Philippines. Now, I'm running it back because, again, this is the first I'm learning about my history in this way. And it's nothing to do with the Filipino people, the indigenous people, the history that existed, our culture, our society, our civilization, our religions, our beliefs, all of the evolution. Now, mind you, fifth grade, right? I get it. But how is the frame, how is the research, how is the source narrating to me that the history that I'm learning is about Ferdinand Magellan, a European explorer to discover these islands, right? So fast forward to my adulthood when I had the ability and skills to, to do my own research. I learned about Lapu-Lapu, who was a chieftain who actually defeated and killed Ferdinand Magellan in the Battle of Mactan when Magellan was trying to pit some of the local tribes against each other and set the stage for European colonization in the Philippines. And my roots, my history, my Filipino people resisted from the very beginning this colonization. Later on, obviously, Spanish colonization for centuries was the storyline. But again, when I dig a little deeper, I'm learning about Gabriela Silang and all of the revolutionaries, Jose Rizal, and all of these folks that have, through generations, resisted colonization and oppression and man if I could go on by the way I don't, I'm not sure if I mentioned I'm a history teacher so I could go on and I on and on and I digress that, and we love but, it um, when I say I'm my ancestors
ancestors' wildest dreams. And as I discover that my revolutionary radical mind that has that's uncomfortable with white supremacy culture and patriarchy that dominate and oppress our political systems. I am my ancestors' wildest dreams is I am living the life that is not only joyful and abundant and just I'm so humbled and grateful to be experiencing this life, but also staying true to the revolutionary spirit and generations of my people that I've learned. And when I say my daughter is mine, all of the ancestors, all of the answers are in her DNA. It's in her blood. It's who she is. She's already born perfect to me. So she is my wildest dreams. And I'm just excited to see her grow and manifest everything that I know she will be. She's that already. Powerful. Just powerful. Then in your spoken word, speak of liberatory education. From the tribesmen that defeated Magellan to the farm workers that organized the labor movement. You are a descendant of greatness. From our wayfinding cousins boldly navigating the Pacific Islands to the great Filipino revolutionary general, Gabriela Salam. This conversation is about my journey toward liberatory education and collective action. Can you elaborate on what this is and on what America needs to do in order to achieve this? Yeah, liberatory education, for me, the, the first seed that was planted is Paolo Freire's liberatory education, pedagogy of the oppressed. And that's something that I've continued to try to learn more about and integrate into my own teaching in my time in the classroom. That said, I'd, I'd say the frameworks that, that have layered into my practice around liberatory education, not only in the classroom with young folks, but in adult learning spaces and leadership trainings and other racial justice, social justice, professional development that I've facilitated that the frameworks, there's plural, there's many frameworks, but one of the frameworks by Barbara J. Love has a really important sequence. And it's, it's not in order, but it, it's awareness, analysis, and action. Awareness, analysis, and action. So once we become aware, for those of us who are on our race consciousness journey, once we become aware and have the ability to articulate and understand the systems of inequity that we've been raised in, we then have the ability to analyze how we can address and resist and push back and navigate around our own oppression. And ultimately, we would need to take action, and that can manifest in a variety of ways. So when I think about liberatory education, it's gaining the self-awareness, it's analyzing the world around us, and it requires action for us to disrupt and dismantle those systems of oppression. To me, that's the really helpful framework for liberatory education. Again, that's Barbara J. Love that I read through my journey, and I've applied in a variety of different ways. 
I could say so much more. I, I'm trying to respect the time, so I just... Um, no, please. The time is yours. Speak freely as you need. All right. So then, obviously, Dr. Bettina Love is one of the thought leaders that I'm following closely with her abolitionist teaching, and Dr. Goldie Muhammad with Cultivating Genius and even the concept of criticality and how that needs to be integrated into our pedagogy and practices with culturally and historically responsive curriculum and teaching. You know, Dr. Tariaso with the community cultural wealth framework, this idea that in these systems we have dominant culture that teaches us narratives that for historically marginalized communities are viewed and framed in deficit thinking. You and I had talked about that on one of the prep calls, this idea that, you know, again, the dominant narrative tries to tell these stories from a deficit lens on these historically marginalized communities, particularly communities of color, but in the face of oppression. So this is the beauty of Dr. Tariaso's community cultural wealth. There's this idea, there's this framework that flips that narrative and it says we are actually resilient. Historically marginalized communities and people are resilient in the face of oppression. And we have then cultivated and accumulated forms of cultural wealth that are valuable in spaces. So that's another seed and framework that helps build my own thinking and practice around liberatory education. So the last point I'll make is really just that liberatory education is about action and it's about living and practicing liberation in a way that allows you to be freer and fight back against the oppression that we are all immersed in. Along those same lines, you discuss the need for liberated ethnic studies. What does this type of teaching look like in the classroom? Liberated ethnic studies is a term that I've actually learned recently by many of my comrades along the West Coast. So Dr. Tanya Jaco is one of the comrades out in the West Coast that leads a liberated ethnic studies movement alongside a whole collective of educators that honestly is, is the model for how the country should be looking ahead into the future. Because ethnic studies, of course, there's, there's a long history of ethnic studies and ways that communities have added advocated to ensure that we disrupt, as I mentioned earlier, these dominant culture narratives and the ways that that manifests as Eurocentric curriculum and whitewashed history and narratives throughout our entire education system. Liberated Ethnic Studies enables us to disrupt that and lift up our own identities into our learning, right? As I mentioned earlier, I told the story of Lapu Lapu, and that was one example of me learning and seeing myself in a liberated way, seeing my ethnicity in a liberated way through my own learning. Now, here's the thing that has happened through my adult learning journey. And even as a labor union activist, I hadn't learned about Philip Vera Cruz and Larry Itliang and the Manongs and all of the Filipino laborers who organized some of the most powerful unions across the West Coast and across American history. I'm a labor union activist of Filipino ancestry, and I've only learned that in my adult life. So to me, I think about liberated ethnic studies and understanding my own history told through a liberated lens in, in a resilient way, in a, in a revolutionary way, if I could have that learning in my childhood to think about how powerful and how advanced I'd be in my own understanding of myself in this context of the United States, that is the aspirational vision that would be a beautiful way for the United States to become its best self, you know, a multicultural democracy and battle that we're currently immersed in. Again, this regressive pushback to maintain the singular power.
power structure of white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. And um, that alignment is manifesting in, in so many different ways. So let's keep fighting is really what, you know, but when I say fighting, right, not in the streets, it's not violence. It's actually the psychological and cultural warfare that's happening within education. It's no surprise and it's no mistake that the strategy of multinational corporations are to privatize public education. And it's no mistake that their strategy is to weaken the public sector unions that represent these educators, which is why the work that I'm doing alongside my comrades in the education space, I feel is one of the most critical battlegrounds. And it's interesting because they try to frame our work as indoctrination, but it's really just such a manipulative tactic. Their tactics are so manipulative that it's it's basic. It's really basic. But our weapons, right, our weapons in this, and I, I, I don't want to talk in militaristic terms, but it, it feels so much like a battle for the soul of America that's unfolding through our school system that, you know, when we talk about liberated ethnic studies, why is it even a debate that we would want to have? cross-cultural communication as a skill set for our young folks to understand and learn right in this global economy in this multicultural society right and that's something where i hope we move generationally towards so that's that This is perfect timing that we get to speak to you about the current state of education in America. Demagogues are weaponizing education all over our country and using it as their central focus to divide our nation and erase the teaching of our full and complicated American history. As you know, June is Pride Month in honor and remembrance of the 1969 Stonewall Uprising. And we are seeing dangerous movements like Mothers for Liberty, and I call them Mothers for White Supremacy. They were just recently this week named as a hate group. Mm -hmm. We're seeing them wage an entire crusade against education. And this has led to interruptions at school board meetings, the banning and removal of books, mostly, of course, Black and LGBTQIA history. They are terrorizing transgender children and their families and are actively working to remove protections for them in school in terms of their access to education, to the facilities they can use, and to the necessary gender-affirming care. And they are mostly supported by a variety of politicians, mostly in the GOP, like Ron DeSantis. What are your thoughts on all of that we are seeing and what do we need to do as a society to ensure the safety and liberty of our educational system? Yes. Everything you describe is so troubling and predictable. If you take a look at the Powell memo written in the 1970s, there's a call to action for neoliberal chamber of commerces to have a strategy that they've been employing for decades to ensure that the right stays in power. And there's a variety of different ways that they've done that, particularly in education, right? They even mentioned talking about how one of the biggest threats to these stabilize their power structure is charismatic leaders in education spaces because of their ability to be influential in changing hearts and minds. And if you look at some of the manifestations of that strategy in today's context, 
it's right in a playbook that they have constructed. And, you know, I won't even name the number of different politicians on both sides of the aisle that are advancing this corporate education reform agenda. And it's really the American Legislative Exchange Council or ALEC. If you take a look at some of their platforms and policies and resources coming out of there, they're manifesting so much of these and they're so well resourced. Um, I will say that it's interesting that they've taken pages out of the progressive wing book in terms of the tactics around community organizing, where they're creating these seemingly community-led, citizen-led organizations, but they are tactically similar, but on the right wing trying to move their own corporate agenda. Corporate, racist, transphobic, homophobic agendas in schools and communities. So what do we need to do? I think we need to see and understand the ways that they're waging this crusade. And I'm so glad that you use that term crusade. I'm going to borrow that in my own mind on how similar the crusade is in this effort. But the ways that we combat this is, and this is an evolution of my own learning, is taught to me by the NAP ministry and just the idea that we need to heal ourselves and be well and discovering the own joy and justice before we continue to wage this war because part of their tactic is to wear us out, right? It's attack after attack. It's wave after wave. It's the most vulnerable, the most marginalized. It's exhausting. It's proliferated throughout their mass media and corporate media to overwhelm your senses and ultimately just drain our batteries to be able to have us exhausted and defeated. It's I know a lot of, of people are feeling it. I know a lot of people. I, I sometimes feel it. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, it's it's the truth about and that's the sign too. especially following the global pandemic. When we're thinking about how we bounce back as a society from this global pandemic, how are we not naming and addressing the collective trauma that we all experience and the healing that we need to do and the structures and the systems and the resources that need to be put in place for us to heal from this collective trauma? Louder for the people in the back. You Louder. know what I'm saying? You better and speak it. <laughs> that is part of our movement, you know. And again, crediting the NAP ministry and Trisha Hersey and Rest is Resistance is a must read. So let's take care of ourselves. And it's not just self-care, right? And self-care is important. And I'll even lift up the great Audre Lord said, rest is not an act of self-indulgence. It's an act of political warfare, right? And when you unpack that, if we exist in systems of oppression that seek to destroy and weaken us, then our resistance must be healthy, well, joyful experiences and finding that joy and justice in this movement. So that's first. We need to take care of ourselves first and foremost. Second, let's study and understand how this playbook that they have out there is is predictable so that we're not constantly caught off guard by the tactics and the attacks and the strategies that they're successfully laying their onslaught with. And then I can go on and on, but I'll just say, um, let's start there and keep doing what we're doing because we're movement builders. They're going to borrow our tactics, but organizing is built into our struggle for generations. And that's the unique thing about this podcast about millennials trying to understand and connect with what has worked in prior generations so that we can advance the movement for our generation. That's a question that I think we need to all explore. We have seen an alarming rise in mass shootings. Many of those shootings have taken place in a school setting, some even in elementary schools. 
Many of the perpetrators are typically young white males who are around the ages of the victims. In lieu of actual gun reform policy, the GOP has suggested that teachers need to be armed, students should wear bulletproof backpacks, and everyone working in the education system should be trained in active shooter drills. What are your thoughts on this? Do you feel safe inside of a classroom given the current state of our nation as it pertains to gun violence? And what does our nation need to do in order to keep everyone safe in their classrooms? It's such a fascinating and terrifying manifestation of a country that has always used violence as a means to achieve an end, right? And when we're seeing the violence spill over into our classrooms, we as millennials perhaps understand this better than most generations because I recall Columbine mass shooting being one of the first. Absolutely. That was one of our first. We were in schools during that time, right? We experienced that first initial shock of that violence and that removal of our psychological safety in school, this idea that violence and mass shootings could happen, and then how it became a trend. Now, obviously, gun control is one issue that's part of that equation and perhaps one of the biggest issues. But how do you attack that singular issue without understanding American imperialism and the export of violence and weapons as one of our biggest exports in the global economy of the United States? And even thinking about safety in schools, part of what we're seeing and what we've been seeing is underfunding and under-resourcing of schools. Now, if you think about the annual budget of military expenditures in the military industrial complex, if you even took a fraction, a fraction of a fraction and reallocated that towards schools and not just school security, but school counselors, trauma informed specialists, trauma informed training for the educators and administrators. And, and you really start to invest in our schools. If that is really the intent, if that is really something that our leaders have the political will to do, then you'll start to see a change over time. And it it ties right back to the healing. So obviously, we can have our own conversation about gun reform and, and things like that. But I think in order for us to really address the root issue, we need to take it to a larger conversation around the, our political systems, our political leaders, the lobbyists that influence their decisions, and so much more. We always allow our guests to have the last word. What is it that you would like our listeners to know as it pertains to education? I think about why I went into service in public education in the first place. And it was born out of a passion. It was born out of an internal and intrinsic motivation to help serve the next generation. And I know that in the hearts of so many of my educator friends and comrades, not only in my state, but also across the country, that's often the root motivator for why people go into this profession. And when we're seeing alarming trends where there's teacher shortages and teacher burnout and the labor force that is passion driven being worn out and constantly attacked, not getting paid and compensated in the ways that deserving of these professionals in the ways in an era where folks in finance and private sector are making exorbitant salaries and benefits and lifestyles. 
yet we're attacking the public educators in this era that's littered with issues from, again, this recovering from this collective trauma of a global pandemic to this onslaught of corporate education reform, evaluation systems, standardized testing, safety in schools. It's a scary time. And if any of your listeners are able to take a a pause and, and just think about the educators that have helped shape them into the adults that they've become, that just remember the educators that are serving our students are doing the best that they can. And we as community, as in a society, owe it to them to support and respect and pour everything that we can into ensuring that this noble profession stays sustainable for the next generations. Once again, Gabriel, thank you so much for your activism and sharing your knowledge and for an extraordinary and powerful discussion. Thank you so much for allowing me the space and the platform and much love to your listeners. And thank you to our listeners for joining this episode of Millennial Edition. And I look forward to engaging with you all soon.